Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Where have you all been? I've been standing here waiting. Yeah, okay. It's not you, it's me. But why quibble about who's been missing in action? Let's just get this thing started. We all love new things, right? Can't just be me. That shiny new car, new pair of shoes, that nice new appliance or piece of electronic wonderfulness. In fact, for a decade in the late 70s to the late 80s, we heard every week that the best kind of love was... Exciting and new. And if you can't name that TV show, then it just proves I'm much, much wiser. Wiser, not older, than you. On today's episode, we're going to manufacture some brand new, shiny, possibly accursed parts. Then we'll see what happens when you just let anyone come up with new ideas. And finally, we'll continue our look into new ideas for a new country. So get inside, away from any potential lightning strikes, throw another Bible on the fire to stay nice and toasty warm, and get out your state's rights bingo card because... Come aboard, we're expecting you. Here we go. A darkness so deep you can feel it. It surrounds, no, engulfs you. A smothering darkness, but not a quiet darkness. Mechanical, whizzing sounds seem to be all around you. The constant gurgling of liquids being pumped hangs in the air, pumped from somewhere to somewhere for some reason. You feel your way through a narrow corridor, feet shuffling along the hard, echoing floor, fingertips brushing and chattering against smooth, cold walls. Suddenly, lights start flickering and crackling to life, beginning at the the far end of the corridor, coming closer and closer. As your eyes adjust to the wall of light barreling toward you like a tidal wave bearing down on land, you see that the walls are not walls at all, but thick panes of glass. Behind the glass, your brain strains to decipher what your eyes are seeing. Realization dawns slowly at first, and all at once, you understand what your eyes are peering at. Humans, or at least humanoids, in various stages of, for lack of a better term, development. These are clearly synthetic, lab-grown, human-like beings hooked to various tubes and wires, floating and twitching in a gelatinous goo, alive, but not alive at all. So at this point, you're wondering if I'm giving you the opening sequence of a dystopian novel or movie, or if this was just some fever dream I had last night. But no, 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 no. This is simply taking what's currently being done to its logical conclusion, potentially in the not-too-distant future. Found on LiveScience.com, headline, First Synthetic Mouse Embryos, Complete with Beating Hearts and Brains, Created with No Sperm, eggs, or womb. Quote, For the first time, scientists have created mouse embryos in the lab without using any eggs or sperm and watched them grow outside the womb. One researcher who was not involved in the study said, quote, We're crossing into the realm of being able to generate an embryo from scratch and potentially a living organism. Another researcher stated, quote, The mouse is a starting point for thinking about how one wants to approach this in humans. It's not necessary to be alarmed or raise any panic, but as we learn, it's important to have in parallel the discussion, how far do we want to take it? To which I would add, yes. (laughs) How far indeed? One of the potential uses for this newfound creative power would be that it, quote, could also someday serve as an incubator for cells, tissues, and organs grown for transplant procedures. So the researchers from the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel, for the first time ever, utilized a specially designed bioreactor that acts as a sort of an artificial womb. Inside of this reactor were small beakers of nutrient-rich solution. Inside of those were the created embryos. These beakers are constantly spinning to simulate the blood and nutrient flow to the placenta, 
The reactor is also designed to mimic the atmospheric pressure of a mouse uterus. A previous experiment in 2021 used this reactor to grow natural, not created, mouse embryos, which made it all the way to day 11, which is a little over half the normal gestation period of mice. The conclusion was that an embryo really didn't need the uterus. It could live outside the uterus. They further concluded that the uterus really only provides nutritional support. Now, I'd like to point out, Your Honor, the embryos didn't live. They just hung on for a little while until they succumbed to their ultimate demise, death. That factoid seems to be of importance, <laughs> at least to me. But based on this definition of success, they decided they wanted to try to do the same thing, but this time, not with natural embryos, rather with synthetic embryos. And here's how they went about it. The team took mouse stem cells, then chemically treated them to reset them to a neutral or naive state, where they could then be prompted to become a heart, a liver, brain, or other vital cells. The team then used a process to switch on the genes of a small number of these naive cells so as to force it to create a placenta, and another group to make a yolk sac. Quoting one of the researchers, quote, We gave these two groups of cells a transient push to give rise to extra embryonic tissues that sustain the developing embryo. They then placed the placenta, yolk sac, and naive or reset stem cells all together in the artificial womb. The cells started to clump together, but out of the 10,000 clumps that formed, only about 50, so 0.5% of the clumps actually went on to develop embryo-like structures. And those only survived for about eight and a half days. So in those eight and a half days, the embryos stretched from spherical to cylindrical. Then around day six, a beginning of a central nervous system started. A tiny wrinkled brain started forming. Around day eight, an intestinal tract developed and a small beating heart started pumping blood through the embryo. Then it died. The article says that the way it developed, as in the form, was different from what was typically seen, which I mean, let's be honest, that's probably why it didn't survive, because, you know, non-viable mutant. From this experiment, the researchers want to delve farther into why embryonic stem cells do what they do, what mechanism tells them to do what they do, and how they know how to assemble into organs and move to the right spots. And then, as I mentioned at the start, the long-term goal would be to possibly incubate cells, tissue, and organs used for transplanting purposes. So what have we done here? And what do we now do with this? Well, bottom line, these researchers, likely giddy that they have proven life finds a way that natural processes can create life, have proven that it takes an intelligent designer to carefully design a scenario to create life, or even just sort of life. They've proven that they had no ability to create out of nothing. They must have the building blocks of life already available to them in order to manipulate and create something that resembles life. This is more than just a chemical soup that evolution fairy tale peddlers try to make us believe created viable life. Now look at what was said in this article. They utilized a specially designed reactor to start the process. Designed by who? Random chance? No, an intelligent designer. This designed reactor is to act as an artificial womb, an artificial replication of something already existing. They used a nutrient-rich solution. Nutrients, not a chemical soup, complex nutrients that were already existing. They simulated the blood and nutrient flow so the processes can happen as closely as possible to the original inside the womb, the thing they created artificially that already exists. The specially designed reactor womb is designed to mimic the pressures inside the already created natural womb. Then, inside this carefully designed mechanical womb device that 
mimics the perfectly designed system we already have, they place already created mouse stem cells. Then they switched on the already created genes in order to make them do what they were designed to do already. And even with all of that, with using already created and existing stuff and mechanically creating nothing but a crude copy of what works perfectly most of the time in nature, this team could still only trick all of the correct things to sort of create a mutant life form that died about halfway or so through the full gestation period. What does this say about the perfection of which our God created man and animals, birds, etc.? Hmm? The dystopian scene I described at the beginning of this review may be nothing more than imagination, but the goal of developing a means of growing organs, tissue, etc. is not. I take no issue with the world of science striving to understand in great detail how life works, as long as they're doing it for God's glory, not for their own. But we all absolutely know that that's not the case. Furthermore, the research being done is to take an embryo and force it to produce a viable creature outside of the mother. They say they want to grow organs, etc., but that's not what this experiment is moving toward at all. In order to create these organs, at least as it appears to me, they mean to create the life form that houses the desired spare parts. So, is this ethical? Is this moral to actually do? I'd have to say no. I can't see how this is a moral or ethical use of time, money, or talent. To begin with, the title of this article states they created these synthetic embryos without sperm, egg, or a womb. That's not exactly true, as where did all of the stem cells actually come from? They didn't scoop them off a rock somewhere. These cells came from another mouse. At some level of development, that was created using the sperm of a boy mouse and the egg and womb of a girl mouse. If it weren't for the already designed, created order, operating the way it was supposed to prior to this little experiment, this experiment wouldn't have succeeded or failed, based on your viewpoint, because there would have been no experiment. The evolutionist theory is a great theory until you look any deeper than the surface level, then it all starts to fall apart. The evidence is literally non-existent. The theories are rife with error and literal physical impossibility, and they know it. They can't in this physical world, without absolutely destroying everything we claim as fundamental science, get something from nothing. They want to, but they can't. They don't, and they didn't this time either. So why are they doing this? Why even pursue something that's this questionable from even a simple ethical standpoint? I believe it's because of one simple thing, fear. Man is afraid of death. If there's one thing we've learned from the recent pandemic, man in general is terrified to die. And I'd expand on this and say that there are two reasons for this fear. One, because they believe this life is all they have. When they die, the walls will close in, the light will grow dark, and then... Nothing. Two, the unsaved man really has no idea what awaits after death. If there is something, it must be awful. Or maybe not. But if it's the God of the Bible, as unlikely as that is, they know he's a cruel, terrible God. I mean, look how mean he is. So they can't have that. And yes, I understand that one use for a technology like this would be to repair human bodies that were either born with certain deficiencies and life-threatening conditions, or those that develop conditions or injuries that would require a new something in order to live a better, more functional life, or in some cases, to live at all. And although we could dive deeper into the clear moral and ethical dilemma this presents, you know, in order to provide organs and tissue to those that need it, eh, this is not what I choose to focus on in this segment. The bottom line is that because of a lack of faith in the truth, a denial of the truth, and a fear of death, man wants to live forever. They're terrified about the prospect of death. This is what's fueling the transhumanist movement that's being talked about more and more lately. If we could just input our brains, our consciousness, our memories into a computer, we could live forever. And we'd never have to face death or the prospect of an afterlife, if one even exists. Well, that's not life, though. Life is not just the sum of our memories and our developed personality. And God breathed into them the breath of life. 
And as much as we could go into that, that's also a discussion for a different time. But what if we could grow our own spare parts? What if we had the ability to create a humanoid farm where we could just synthetically grow human-like creatures, and if we need a heart, a, a lung, a kidney, muscles, ligaments, bones, we could just take them from the human parts bin. Would these beings be considered humans? Would they have souls? Would this be murder? <laughs> I honestly don't know how to answer that question or those questions. I've thought about it, and I can arrive at either conclusion with absolutely no problem whatsoever. What this definitely is, though, is immoral. This is literally attempting to play God, and again, for only one reason. Fear, specifically the fear of death. The Apostle Paul had a singular focus, to glorify God. To that end, in Philippians 1, he was telling the Christians of Philippi that he wanted to honor Christ with his entire being, including his body. Quote, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He wanted to die, but not to die to get off this rock or to stop whatever the thorn in his side was. He wanted to see his Savior face to face. But he knew that his time wasn't quite yet. He had earthly work to complete for God's heavenly kingdom, and so that's what he would continue to do. Paul, as should be the same for all of us that can claim to be born again, was in no way afraid of death. We are not given a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of self-control. We are simply not to be afraid of death. The unsaved world, on the other hand, should be afraid, very afraid of death. When Joel Osteen says you can live your best life now, when these charlatan wolves standing in our pulpit spew out their TED Talks that they're trying to pass off as sermons, telling you three ways to do this or four steps to have that or here's how to pray things into existence, they're absolutely correct. These are the formulas to live your best life now. If you're talking about the unsaved world, of course, of which most of them are very likely part of. The job of the born-again believer, however, is not to have our best life now. Our job is to live for Christ and eventually die, which will be a gain beyond anything any of us can imagine. The Christian has no reason, no room even, to fear death. We can have fear about the process of dying, I think that's only natural, but we should never fear death itself. You can find more verses on fear than on just about anything else in the Bible. It's definitely the most repeated command in the Bible, fear not. But why shouldn't we fear death? Simply because, for the saved... The cares of this world, although they can appear and feel very real, very heavy in this life, they are literally light, momentary afflictions. Specifically regarding the topic of death, we know from the Psalms that we should fear no evil as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And why? Because the rod and the staff of God will guide, correct, and protect us, and from that we can feel comforted. We know from Matthew that we should not fear those that can kill the earthly body only, but to fear the one who can and will cast humans, the unsaved, into the fires of hell. We know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus came to earth, lived the same human life as we all do, and then died and rose again, conquering death and the devil, and made it possible for us to no longer be slaves to sin, but co-heirs with Christ and no longer fearful of death. We know that Jesus told us himself that he alone is the only way, the true truth, and everlasting life. When we believe in him, place our belief in who he said he is, believe what the Bible tells us about his death, burial, and resurrection, and repent of our sinful, rebellious life. Even though we will die on this earth in this form, we will never die. We will live eternally with him. Now, those that aren't saved, they will also live eternally, but it will not be an eternal life like I just described. It will be an eternal existence of experiencing the wrath of God for their rebellion, their unrepentant sin against the God of creation. Bottom line, the Christian should never fear the ending of this earthly existence, but the unsaved should be terrified of this life ending. The answer, however, isn't to believe in the fantasy that we can just move ourselves into an undying machine of some sort, 
thinking we'll live forever by doing that. The answer isn't to close our eyes to very questionable practices, at best, to pursue a way to synthetically grow tissue in organ farms so we can perpetually replace parts, ignoring the massive moral and ethical questions this raises, instead focusing on how noble of a cause we want to portray it to be. The answer is to ask the question, why? We, and by we, I mean the scientific community, as well as the population at large, need to ask why we want to even start to walk down a path like this. We need to identify the root cause of our desire to cheat death, to live forever, and research all potential ways to address that root cause, the root cause being the fear of death. I maintain that would the scientific community ever place Christianity alongside their other theories and beliefs, and honestly scrutinize each of them, they would have no choice but to conclude that Christianity is not only the best way to live, but that it's the only system that seems to fit all aspects of the world as we know it. But knowing that that will likely never happen, as Christians we soldier on. We continue our commission to tell the lost world why they don't need to fear death, why they don't need to create a humanoid organ farm, and we show them what it means to truly live in an existence devoid of the fear of a bodily death because we are confident in our knowledge that we will live eternally in paradise. Have you ever been wrong? Yeah, I know, stupid question. Most of you have been wrong. What about me, you ask? Well, I thought I was wrong once. It turns out I was mistaken, though, so, you know, crisis averted. Anywho, there's wrong, and then there's wrong, and then... Well, I mean, saying multiply that by infinity, it's so cliche, but let's do that. Let's multiply by infinity because I know of no other way to even approach how wrong the author Zishan Alim is. Now, Mr. Alim is an MSNBC opinion columnist who has also worked for Vox, HuffPo, and Political, also written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Nation, and others. Now, with a resume like that, this is where that meme of Satan telling him that he's a big fan of his work comes in. So, what could Mr. Aleem be so wrong about? Okay, well, found on msnbc.com, headline, Why America Needs a New Kind of Atheism Right Now. Okay. The byline will help to clear things up. Trust me on this. It reads, quote, An energetic atheism can tackle the twin crises of creeping theocracy and the death of conventional religion. Ooh. Now, let me let you in on a little inside baseball. Most of the time I read an article all the way through before I start to work on the research and the write-up. Every once in a while, I come across an article that is so terrible in the first paragraph or two, I just start writing trusting that it'll be worth it. This article is just such an article. Let me show you why. In the first sentence, Zishan says, quote, There are two pressing crises tied to the state of religion in America today. A new style of atheism can help answer both of them. Then he builds his premise in the first paragraph of the first of the two crises, that being in excess of religion. He says that, Christian theocracy is no longer a potential? Oh no, 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 no. It's an emerging reality in America. He says the Supreme Court is radically reactionary and two-thirds Catholic. He says that the wall of separation that Thomas Jefferson erected is dilapidated and graffitied and crumbling. He says that overturning Roe means women in America are, quote, being held hostage by a conservative Christian conception of life. He says the Kennedy v. Bremerton ruling, and I covered this previously, this is the high school football coach that took about 30 seconds at the 50-yard line after every game to kneel and give a quick prayer of thanks. Well, that ruling now actually lets school officials publicly pray and make students feel pressure to join in. He says that the Carson v. Macon decision, and I covered this one also. This is the case in Maine that said that the state, if they're going to offer education vouchers for kids, they can't discriminate against Christian schools. Well, this quote allows taxpayer dollars to be used to fund religious education. 
In some states, he claims that Republicans, quote, have invoked Christianity to pursue a systematic assault on transgender rights. In Louisiana, quote, abortion abolitionists have convinced lawmakers that people who abort their babies should be charged with homicide. And then he, like the good leftist media personality he is, has to use the latest agreed-upon term. He says that Christian nationalism is on the move. That's what almost destroyed our entire world when people entered and casually meandered around the Capitol on January 6th. He quotes Lauren Boebert condemning the misuse of, quote, separation of church and state in a church a few weeks back. I covered that one also. So, do you see what I mean? That's the first two paragraphs, and that's the problem with the excess of religion. But remember, there were two crises. The second is, quote, ironically, the decline of religion. Well, that is ironic. Let's see what this clearly genius-level scholar has to say about this one. So, also ironically, unlike every single premise of his first alleged crisis, he actually has the premise of the second one, basically correct. He states that the religious right is gaining in power in the courts and legislatures, but America as a whole is actually drifting away from religion, with more and more people identifying as nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. He also says because of this drift, people are losing communities that provide purpose and moral contemplation. They're dropping out of religion, they're dropping out of society, and they're basically just existing. As for his solution to this twofold crisis, quote, my belief is that an energetic, organized atheist movement, which I propose calling communitarian atheism, would provide an effective way to guard against the twin crisis. By offering an organized atheistic community, he feels they can create a movement like the religious right has apparently been mounting and start fighting against the theocratic mess that's been made. This, in his opinion, may be the only way to stop those darn Christians from marching through and destroying everything. So, he's right about that. An atheistic religion, and trust me, it is a religion requiring actually more faith than Christianity when you really look into it. He believes that that would theoretically offer direct opposition to a religious movement, if, if there was, in fact, an actual religious movement, which there, there literally isn't. We go on. But he says, quote, at the same time, atheism can address the social and spiritual vacuum emerging in the wake of the slow death of mainstream organized religion. This requires learning from religion, not indiscriminately attacking it. By putting together study groups, communities for secular meditation, and elucidating the meaning and joys of atheism without spewing venom toward all religion, atheists can build spaces for religion-skeptical people to find purpose, think about ethics, form community, and consider more carefully how to build a better society. And then he went on and he said that for him, quote, atheism opened up my world, but it didn't hold it together. Then he goes on to outline his journey from Islam to atheism, which he says, quote, losing my religion was an unexpected moment of ecstasy. He said that he couldn't believe in a God without evidence and without understanding why evil exists. Here's what Zishan said atheism did for him. He said it enlivened him and helped him develop deeper skepticism of received wisdom. He said it inspired him to think about achieving utopia on earth. And he said it shifted his focus toward political activism, shockingly, on the radically left-wing side of things. He then goes on to outline how he is a committed atheist, but likes some things that the concept of religion or religions brings. For instance, he likes the airiness of the mosque. He likes the meditation of the Buddhists. He likes the community of the Jews. He likes the quiet ponderings of the Quakers. He admits that his political activism didn't quite scratch the itch, as the political community wasn't the type of community he was searching for. But after his grandfather died, he connected with a Quaker meeting house, apparently one that didn't speak of God, just existence, and this is when his revelation happened. Communitarian atheism is the answer. And then he goes on to say that atheism isn't defined, as most people think, as a belief that there are no gods. <laughs> Side note, that's exactly what atheism means. No, he said it's more that you just don't subscribe to any gods, that you, you don't really know 
Then he says it's more akin to agnosticism. <laughs> Another side note, that, that is agnosticism. He doesn't know if there's a God. He just doesn't care. He's promoting communitarian agnosticism, actually. He then goes on to quote some Georgetown professor that's lamenting the fact that the religious right wing is too coordinated, too focused, too well-funded, with a well-developed long-term vision, and the left just has nothing to be able to compete with that. That's summing up about three-quarters of the article. You should click the link in the notes and read the full article. It's a master's class in literally being wrong on nearly every aspect of life, belief, and worldview. It's just amazing how much nonsensical wrongness he packed into this one writing. I'm going to take the next few minutes and dismantle just about everything he said and point out why he's doing what he's doing and set the direction he needs to move in order to get where he wants to get. But before I do that, I just want to say as much as my cynical, snarky, human side wants to destroy this moron for his abject stupidity and either his insistence on being ignorant or his bald-faced conscious lies, I actually feel sorry for this guy. This is a man that's searching. Unlike many alleged atheists, agnostics, or nuns, he's actually trying to figure out exactly what's missing and develop a way to fix it. Most just ignorantly decide they don't want a religion and they just walk obliviously through life, usually with a chip on their shoulder. So kudos to this guy. But that won't help him in eternity, no matter how diligent his efforts on earth are. That said... Let's shred this thing to pieces, shall we? I'm going to move fast. I'm going to direct you to go back and listen to various segments and past episodes, as I've covered much of this before, and I'm not going to waste your time doing it again. Let's go back to the first crisis. Too much religion. First, Christian theocracy is not a movement. It's literally not a thing. About the closest we ever came, after the potential the founders could have tried to implement a theocracy as they weighed options of how to govern this new nation— it was maybe the moral majority formed by Jerry Falwell in 1979 organized to get moral, preferably professing Christians into whatever political position possible to try to stem the godless tide. That lasted less than a decade. And let me just point out, look around you. That's how long-lasting the effects of, of that was. Second, the left wing of our political spectrum is illogical and hypocritical, as well as clueless and whiny. They only like the Constitution, the branches of government, the laws and systems in place, if they get their way. So the branch of government known as the Supreme Court is a wonderful institution, as long as they rule based on the emotional, degenerate desires of the left. They don't want the SCOTUS to rule based on the Constitution. They want them to rule based on the leftist playbook and stated party platform. If they don't do that, they're evil and need to be revamped, enlarged, or eliminated altogether. This is not how rational, well-adjusted, mentally stable people act. Third, with regard to the wall of separation of church and state, the Kennedy v. Bremerton case, and the Carson v. Macon case, I covered all of those in episode 51, entitled Societal Collapse, in the first segment entitled Tear Down That Wall. Go check it out. The bottom line, the author of this article is either lying in order to try to make his point, knowing that his readers will most likely not challenge him, or he's just that ignorant, simply repeating what organizations like those he works for have said without actually doing any work, just being outraged over what he's been told to be outraged over. Fourth, women aren't being held hostage by the overturning of Roe, and the conception of life is not a Christian thing, although being a Christian definitely gives you a purpose behind and a greater appreciation for life. For more on this, go to my episode 32. It was a special single-topic episode entitled Abortion, a Primer. You'll understand why this unborn child is called a living human, you'll understand why women are not held hostage, and you'll understand why even those that are atheists or agnostics can also agree with the points that are all too often called Christian by the corporate media. Fifth, the claim that some states have used Christianity to try to assault transgender rights. So if you're a Christian and you think that transgenderism is fine and we should all just accept each other, let me just say this, you're not a Christian, as you don't believe in the Bible, which is God's word. Being a Christian is being a Christ follower, to be Christ-like. It's hard to claim you're a Christ follower if you only follow the things that you like and the things you make up in your mind about Jesus Christ. So by definition, Christians should be 
anti-transgenderism. Not hateful of the person, but hateful of the lifestyle, because we know that it's sinful. We know what sin does to humanity on earth, and we know where an unrepentant sinful life leads. We shouldn't want that for anyone. As conservatives or Republicans, we're kind of partial to the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, and as such, we don't feel that anyone needs special rights just because they choose a specific lifestyle. Transgender Americans are as deserving of every right and law granted to every other citizen, but nothing more and nothing less. With regard to kids, and specifically kids in Florida, because let's be honest here, he's talking about the egregiously misnamed Don't Say Gay Bill. Well, look, here's the deal. We on the conservative right and many on the liberal left don't think it's a good idea to allow kids as young as a few months old to determine what they think they want to be in terms of gender based on the grooming of the demonically controlled leftists and then start jerking around their hormones, cutting off breasts or penises and otherwise modifying and mutilating them so we can walk around with a feeling of self-importance claiming the life that was just destroyed was saved by the altruistic action taken. If you think differently than that, you're sick, you're mentally deranged, and you need to seek help because that's literally psychotic. For more on the bill in question, you can go to episode 7, entitled Intersectionality Bingo, the segment called Fighting Racism is Racist. Or you can go to episode 36, called Designer God, the segment entitled Jesus Who? Finally, as for the Louisiana law saying that those who perform an abortion will be charged with homicide... Good! If the belief is that the baby is alive, how would killing it not be homicide? So the law says that someone that commits the crime of abortion will be faced with 10 years of prison and $100,000 in fines. Probably up to that. But if the fetus is over 15 weeks old, that goes to 15 years and $200,000. So what does this author expect? We would literally be worse monsters if we truly believe the fetus is a living human and do nothing if he or she is killed. You know, like the philosophy that Justice John Roberts has. Next, very quickly, he quotes this professor that says the right, specifically the religious right, is apparently a well-oiled machine. Hell bent, well, no, no, no. Heaven bent on conquering America for God. Uh, and they'll all be sorry once we, once we conquer America for God. Let me say, we have never been we aren't now, and we will never be a theocracy in America. Not in this phase of eternity. And good. I would never want this country to be run as a theocracy because we'd screw it up, and it would be even worse than it is now. Just look at the terroristic rule the Catholics imposed. We, as Christians, aren't capable of getting this right. We talk about the Muslim system of theocratic rule and how they get it wrong, we would do no better. The only theocracy we should ever want is the one in eternity when Jesus himself rules this world. As for the well-oiled machine, the conservative and or religious right are the most ham-fisted, bumble-headed collection of buffoons ever. There are a few large donors, but nothing like what the left has. And we're in a constant state of playing catch-up and firefighting because we don't think ahead. Maybe that's why anytime something seems to lean conservative, the whiny babies that make up the left scream and cry because they're not ever supposed to not get their way. Any conservative victory is immediately viewed as a Christian inquisition. Okay, so the entire premise of this article is completely wrong, except for the fact that those that adhere to religion, specifically Christianity, are shrinking in numbers and the general points he made that religion actually offers people something important. Those were right. And this is where I feel sorry for him. He started as a Muslim and found no answers for questions of evil. He found no proof of God. And might I say, I guarantee he found no hope, no joy in his religion at all. Islam has an aloof, temperamental God who will determine your salvation and worthiness for heaven at the time of your death and based less on what you've done and more on his mood at that moment. There is no assurance of heaven, of salvation, no matter what you do. And without that, you walk through life with no peace, no hope, no joy. I know that there are very good Muslims out there that would disagree with me, but if you dig into their beliefs, trust me, I, I'm right. The author, Zishan Alim, said that he thinks we can borrow from religion and create an atheism that's attractive and useful, not just hateful and cold, 
What he feels he needs to borrow from religion are study groups for secular meditation, elucidating or making clear the meaning and joys of atheism, spaces for people to find purpose, spaces for people to think about ethics, spaces for people to form community, and the ability to consider how to build a better society. What this man is searching for is literally Christianity. He wants to meditate with purpose. The Bible is very clear that we are to meditate on the scriptures day and night. By doing so, we understand our creator, better understand our creation. We learn of the origins of evil. We discover what has been done to save us from a sin-cursed world and eternal damnation. If all he wants to do is clear his mind and open it for whatever, well, something will come in and fill that vacuum. Yet one more side note in this segment. If you're in a meditation where you clear your mind of thoughts and focus on your breathing or whatever, as practices like yoga promotes, or if you're in school or work and using mindfulness techniques with essentially the same purpose, you need to stop. Not one time will you find the term meditate in the Bible associated with anything other than on the scriptures. You'll never find instruction to clear your mind of all thoughts. Next, he wants to clearly define the joys of atheism. He wants joy. Boil it down. He desires an inner sense of unbreakable joy. He has found a humanistic version of joy by getting out from the joyless religion of Islam, but he'll never find true joy. It's literally not possible to have true joy unless you have something concrete, unchangeable, bigger than this life to fall back on. There must be something to have joy in. Atheism gives freedom from rules, from right and wrong, and allows you worldly pleasures, human happiness, but there is no possible way to have true joy in atheism. My God never changes. He's never out of control. I may not understand most of what's going on, but God does. And my God has me firmly in his grip. My salvation, my eternity is secure. And that's where I can find joy. He wants to find purpose. Well, as with joy, in atheism, there is also no purpose. Sure, you can, as Bill Nye thinks, leave it better for the next guy, but that's a very shallow, unfulfilling purpose. Christianity, again, is the only religion and the only worldview that provides a human with true purpose. Why have Christians the world over not given up the fight against abortion? Because we have a purpose. We have a larger view of this creation than just a random chance, chaotic mutation of rock slime. Any purpose the atheist community finds, for instance, pushing back religion, is ultimately unfulfilling. He wants people to think about ethics. Well, from an atheist worldview, there is no such thing as ethics. We all evolved. We all have the possibility of evolving differently. So your ethics are not necessarily my ethics. If my ethics say I get to rape any female of any age with the intent to impregnate her and murder every male I consider to be a threat to me in any way, which incidentally, is exactly what a true evolutionary worldview promotes, termed as survival of the fittest, then why are your ethics better than mine? The only possible way he can speak of ethics is to borrow them entirely from the Bible. He says he wants community. Now, I'll tell you, he really seems to be a busy, sociable, connected, lonely man. His entire article keeps coming back to his desire for community. There is literally no other worldview, religious or otherwise, that mandates community like Christianity. All Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. We are children of God. We are in the family of God. We are to meet together. The only distinction is saved or not saved. Once we're saved, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. No other man-made community even comes close to being as inclusive as this. And then finally, he wants to create a better society. What he doesn't understand is that society, by and large, is made up of lost, unregenerate, sinful people. This world cannot be made into a better society, and it certainly can't be made so by other sinful, unregenerate humans. They can try to be friendly and nice and non-judgmental and inclusive, but this, as it always has done, it'll always collapse and it'll fail, as it's a house of cards built in a stiff wind. Christians also want a better society, but we have a realistic view of our current existence. We know that all the surface human things are fine, and some of them definitely have a use, but the only way to better any society is to show people why 
they want to be better, why they want to be forgiving, why they want to be selfless, and why they want to be loving. Without the why, the society, no matter how hard you try, isn't going to be sustainable. As I said, I feel sorry for this author. He's desperately searching for Christ, or at least it appears so to me. Only God knows if this man is one of his children, just not yet, or not. I don't subscribe to the idea that all men have a God-shaped hole they're trying to fill. I firmly believe that there are those that are not pursuing that. They're perfectly happy in their unregenerate life of human pleasure and sin. But I also believe that every man has the needs that Mr. Aleem laid out. The way they're pursued is different between the saved and unsaved. And the pursuit amongst the unsaved varies wildly based on every person doing what's right in their own eyes. Sadly, this man will likely spurn others to follow his lead find that attractive form of atheism, and then live out their best life now with no understanding that what they're trying to do is copy Christianity, but with themselves as their God. And they'll never find satisfaction in what they're doing. So, two things to wrap this up. First, make sure that you're not only prepared to tell others of the hope, purpose, joy, peace, and love that you have living inside of you, but also that you're knowledgeable to the point that you can speak to the lies and spin like is found in this article that the world will throw out there. And second, pray for this man. He just comes off to me as someone that is searching. He's he's someone that was damaged by a false religion and has been in pursuit of something ever since. Pray that God will have mercy on him, open his eyes, and grant him faith to believe. With the basic interaction between states established in Article 1 through 4, the Congress now had to navigate the very tumultuous waters of trying to create a centralized government that could manage the business of the country as a whole without infringing the autonomy of the individual states in reality or perception to the point that any of the states felt the iron pinch of the shackles of autocratic tyranny they were trying to be free from. Should any of the states balk at what had been submitted to them by the Congress for approval, the consequences could be devastating. Welcome to Episode 5 of The American Genesis. We are in Part 2 of the Articles of Confederation, today covering Articles 5 and 6. So, as is our custom, let's first read the text as written. We read Article 5. For the more convenient management of the general interests of the United States, delegates shall be annually appointed in such manner as the legislature of each state shall direct to meet in Congress on the first Monday in November in every year with a power reserved to each state to recall its delegates or any of them at any time within the year and to send others in their stead for the remainder of the year. No state shall be represented in Congress by less than two, nor by more than seven members, and no person shall be capable of being delegate for more than three years in any term of six years, nor shall any person, being a delegate, be capable of holding any office under the United States for which he or another for his benefit receives any salary, fees, or emolument of any kind. Each state shall maintain its own delegates in a meeting of the states and while they act as members of the committee of the states. In determining questions in the United States, in Congress assembled, each state shall have one vote. Freedom of speech and debate in Congress shall not be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Congress, and the members of Congress shall be protected in their persons from arrests and imprisonments during the time of their going to and from and attendance on Congress, except for treason, felony, or breach of the peace. Article 6. No state without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled shall send any embassy to, or receive any embassy from, or enter into any conference, agreement, alliance, or treaty with any king, prince, or state, nor shall any person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States, or any of them, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state, nor shall the United States in Congress assembled, or any of them, grant any title of nobility. No two or more states shall enter into any treaty, confederation, or alliance, whatever, between them, without the consent of the United States, in Congress assembled, specifying accurately the purposes for which the same is to be entered into and how long it shall continue. 
No state shall lay any imposts or duties which may interfere with any stipulations and treaties entered into by the United States in Congress assembled with any king, prince, or state in pursuance of any treaties already proposed by Congress to the courts of France and Spain. No vessels of war shall be kept up in time of peace by any state except such number only as shall be deemed necessary by the United States in Congress assembled for the defense of such state or its trade, nor shall any body of forces be kept up by any state in time of peace except such number only as in the judgment of the United States in Congress assembled shall be deemed requisite to garrison the forts necessary for the defense of such state. But every state shall always keep up a well-regulated and disciplined militia sufficiently armed and accounted, and shall provide and constantly have ready for use in public stores a due number of field pieces and tents and a proper quantity of arms, ammunition, and camp equipage. No state shall engage in any war without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled unless such state be actually invaded by enemies or shall have received certain advice of a resolution being formed by some nation of Indians to invade such state, and the danger is so imminent as not to admit of a delay till the United States in Congress assembled can be consulted, nor shall any state grant commissions to any ships or vessels of war, nor letters of marquee or reprisal, except it be after a declaration of war by the United States in Congress assembled, and then only against the kingdom or state and the subjects thereof, against which war has been so declared, and under such regulations as shall be established by the United States in Congress assembled, unless such state be infested by pirates, in which case vessels of war may be fitted out for that occasion, and kept so long as the danger shall continue, or until the United States, in Congress assembled, shall determine otherwise. Okay, a lot to take in there, a lot of in Congress assembled, we'll get to it. I think I've mentioned in the past that I've written a good number of procedures in my career. Some of these procedures were documents that were subject to audit by various authorities. Generally, unless your procedure was just nonsensical, these auditors were simply verifying that what you said you were going to do is, in fact, what you were doing. The first few audits I was subject to, there were findings, which are basically minor actions that needed to be taken, as we were not doing exactly what the procedure said we were. The problem wasn't so much that we were violating anything or breaking any rules or sacrificing safety or quality or anything like that. The problem was that the procedures were written in a way that reflected the perfect world scenario and didn't allow for any leniency or wiggle room. Learning from my mistakes, I started modifying the procedures in question. What was needed was an ironclad, unwavering procedure that had a system of loopholes, backdoors, and hidden passages that spelled out exactly how something should be done while allowing for that wiggle room because life rarely functions as designed. This is what it feels like when I read these two articles. I get the sense that the Congress was walking on eggshells. We can't have individual states starting wars, says one delegate. Well, no, but what about such and such, says another. If my state doesn't have the ability to defend itself, there will be no way they'll pass this document, says yet another, and the debate and the compromise ensues. Each point in these two articles feels like they just started with a rock-solid my-way-or-the-highway mentality and then set up the exceptions because they kind of had to. Article 5 set up the representation system. You can see some very faint semblance as to what we have today, but in a much more simplistic manner. States picked their delegates. States were responsible for ensuring their delegates were paid a living wage. A state must have at least two, but no more than seven. That was their decision. And regardless of the number of delegates, each state had only one vote. The delegates could serve no more than three years in any six-year period, and they could be recalled and replaced at any time by the state. And notice how this was set up to try to eliminate conflicts of interest. They could not be an employee of the United States and an individual state delegate. This article set up a state's interest first kind of system. Now, this is essentially how our House of Representatives today was supposed to operate and did operate per the Constitution until it was changed around to some degree via constitutional amendments that we'll get to in the not-too-distant future. They were also determined to ensure the ability to speak freely, exchange ideas no matter how crazy, without the fear that they would be labeled a traitor simply due to discussion and debate. 
they did caveat that if they broke the law, well, I mean, they'd be subject to the authorities, but not just for speaking their mind. There should be nothing illegal about brainstorming ideas, no matter how crazy. Article 6 starts getting into war powers, which was obviously on their minds at this time. And now this will continue in the next few articles as well. The bottom line is that they did not want or need a state going rogue and dragging the United States, you know, all of the other states, into a position of having to defend the stupidity of a state that got their knickers in a twist. The states were not allowed to have their own standing army or navy. None of them were allowed to have their own air force. Think about it. But at the same time, the Congress recognized that the states would need to have defenses to man their forts. Some needed waterways protected, etc., etc. They also said that beyond that, they needed to maintain their own ready militia. They needed to do this with enough supplies, arms, ammo, and other necessities to be able to stand up and defend itself until the United States military could arrive if needed. This article also said that states couldn't go off on their own and start making treaties with other nations or even with other states. The full slate of delegates needed to review what was going on. Again, this was to stop an arrogant rogue state from writing checks for the country that the country couldn't cash. Likewise, the states couldn't impose any roadblocks to treaties and agreements that the country, the delegates, the Congress had entered into. The bottom line really came down to the golden rule, more or less. Matthew 7.12 gives us what has been summed up as the golden rule, Jesus speaking here, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, nearly every culture has a version of the golden rule, but in most cultures, the rule is flipped on its head as a negative command. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Now, that's a passive command. This was essentially how the Congress envisioned the United States, at least at this point, taking their writings, just each state being very autonomous. They can do what they want for the most part. Just don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk to your people or the people of other states. Don't be a jerk to the central government with the relatively small amount of power they possess, etc. Just do the right thing. But Jesus actually stated this command in the positive. You go do unto others as you would very much like to have them reciprocate back to you. And notice that Jesus did not go on to say they would reciprocate. That still didn't change the command to each of us. We are to go and do, regardless of the outcome. You may be curious as to why Jesus said that this is the law and the prophets. Well, there are three sections to the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, although arranged slightly differently. You have the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. You have the prophets, which encompasses the majority of the Old Testament. And then you have the writings. Think of this as the poetry and the wisdom literature. This encompassed Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Job, Esther, Ruth, Song of Solomon, the Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Lamentations. Jesus only spoke of two of the three sections of scriptures when stating this command, the law and the prophets. The law clearly laid out God's laws as given to Moses. These laws give in very specific detail how we are to relate to God. This is encapsulated in the first four commandments and many of the laws. And with each other, which is the last six commandments and also many laws. The books contained in the prophets further go into the history of the Jewish people, both the good and the bad, and God's interaction with them and their interaction with others. These books are largely historical narrative. The writings are more poetic and wisdom, and although there's a lot to be gleaned from those as well, they aren't necessarily full of commands or laws, and they don't contain promises or covenants like the other two sections. So Jesus was basically saying, look at the laws and the commands, and look at your history, You have all the knowledge you need as to how to interact with God and with your neighbor. So do it. We can look at our country today, and clearly we don't see this, either on an individual level, and and I'm as guilty as you are, or on a state-to-state or state-to-central government type level. We are in constant conflict. Now, some would say it's become more of a matter of self-preservation at this point. It'd be hard to argue with that. And in large degree, we're operating in the system of laws that we have, although some states have taken liberties as to what laws they'll follow and which ones they won't. But just think, what would our country be like if person to person, state to state, we were all bending over backwards to be the first to treat each other how we'd like to be treated, regardless of if they ever did it? 
Sadly, due to pride, greed, lust, jealousy, the quest for power and control, and the ever-widening gulf between the two main worldviews, God and not God, this kind of thing will never exist, at least not on a consistent, large scale, not until Jesus comes back and remakes the world perfect again. But remember, this was the first shot by our new Congress. They were basically testing to see how grown up the children were, with some broad boundaries. And seeing as the articles didn't last for very long, I'd say that it could be classified as maybe not the best decision? A little more structure was needed still. So that does it for this episode of the American Genesis. In our next episode, we'll continue walking through the articles with a very heavy focus on war. So, until next time, go practice the golden rule. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.